Good morning, my name is Bill Safestrom. This morning our scripture is from the book of Isaiah. Please follow along in your Bible or on the screen or your favorite device. I'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 4 from the New English Version. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has chosen me. He has commissioned me to encourage the poor, to help the brokenhearted, to decree the release of captives and the freeing of prisoners, to announce the year when the Lord will show his favor, the day when our God will seek vengeance, to console all who mourn, to strengthen those who mourn in Zion by giving them a turban instead of ashes, oil symbolizing joy instead of mourning, a garment symbolizing praise instead of discouragement. They will be called oaks of righteousness, trees planted by the Lord to reveal his splendor. They will rebuild the perpetual ruins and restore the places that were desolate, They will reestablish the ruined cities, the places that have been desolate since ancient times. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, Let me start off with a little explanation about this image behind me. It's, um, it's a little bit motivational poster for me. Kind of seems like a pharmaceutical commercial. Like if you take... Oh, it's not starting yet. Sorry. Here we go. This image right here. There you go. A little bit pharmaceutical, right? Like if you take Allegra, then you can climb mountains or something. Uh, but it works uh, for me for this uh, sermon that I want to continue from last week. And I want to talk about the idea of ministry. And the word minister or ministry simply means to give. And the idea is that you have something to give that you are supposed to give. So imagine that you're sort of like a water pipe. And there's water in you. There's water that's flowing into you. And the whole point of your existence is for you to be unclogged and open so that gift of water can flow through you. If you're not giving, if, you're, if you are not ministering, then you're a clogged pipe. That's sort of the Christian idea of why we exist. We are all called at once to be and to serve, to give the very gift that we hold within ourselves. And so a part of this sermon is going to feel a little bit like a family business, sort of how to be together as a church. I think there are many nuggets in here for everyone to enjoy, though. All right. Uh, I want to start with the definition of ministry. And this is the part of the sermon that took me the longest. I've been wordsmithing this for two weeks. Okay, this is my best shot at what it uh, means to uh, be in ministry. I'm going to break it down for us. In a sentence, it is the give and take in community through which they experience God's love in Christ. Give and take. Uh, What that means is that 
because of the nature of uh, how God made us and what our purpose is, there's a, an incredibly blurred experience that you have when you give. Meaning that you cannot decide for yourself whether you received more or gave more when you were doing ministry. When you love somebody, does it give joy or do you get joy? Is it a gain for you or is it a gain for them? It's very hard to separate out this experience because of the nature of who we are and how God hardwired us to be. It is the joy of the human soul to be able to give and serve and love. And so there's a give and take when you do ministry. Okay, so first and foremost, it's a give and take. It's not just a give. It's not just something being taken from you. You give and receive. Second thing, it's a community experience. The second you exist apart from just yourself. You are required to see and to be and to serve and to create space for this other person. The Hebrew word I learned uh, this week for the word uh, used in relationships is the Hebrew word zimzam. And it just means space. And so when somebody else exists apart from you, you by virtue of their existence, you have to make way for the other person. You're creating space. And immediately there's sort of the shared experience. We're meant to live in community, to belong to one another. Okay, third, uh, experience. I want to try to say this very clearly, a little bit uh, strong here, uh, stronger than I, I think is actually real. But without experience, love is not real, true or false. Like if love falls in the forest and nobody's there to hear it. <laughs> did it happen? Feelings and thoughts that you have about love, that's about you. You get to enjoy this theoretical idea in your own head, in your own heart. But the other person that you supposedly have those thoughts and feelings towards or for or about, if they don't experience the love that you are feeling, it's not real. And so the Bible puts it succinctly and it says, faith without works is dead. That's what that means. That love, if it exists just in your mind, in your own person, it's not actually fulfilled yet. It's, it's there in seed form. It has to be birthed somewhere within you. But the reality, the fullness of that experience is when somebody else experiences it. Another way the scriptures puts it is, I can do all things, but without love it's empty. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So there is a way in which the direction of love is what makes it real. There has to be a flow to it. So imagine the picture of the plumbing again. If you're a pipe... Is it a pipe if water isn't flowing through it? Or maybe it's just a jar then. Or it's just a container. It's not actually a pipe. Right? And so the give and take in community through which they experience 
And then this is the last and most important part, God's love in Christ. How many of you have been loving or trying to love or get love or give love the whole of your life? Let me see a show of hands. Love is a thing for you. It's, it's one of those endeavors or goals or defaults in your life. Everybody. Right? Love is a pretty universal uh, thing. I think you've experienced this. I certainly experience this every single day. And what I experience is that my love, my fleshly human love, the love that originates from me, it's just not enough. It's fragile. It's inconsistent. It's fickle. And it's, it's partial. It's subjective. It's, it's very loaded with conflicts of interest. And I'm living th- through people. I have issues that I'm trying to work out. I have anxieties in the moment that are parading around as love, but it's not actually love. And so my love is very impure, and it rarely gets the job done. And so the whole Christian gospel is that it's not about your love. It's not about you at all. You're just sort of this vessel, and God's love, which was commuted to us through Christ, the Christian story is very simple. God became man and he died so that he can forgive us of our sins. That is, so that we can experience God's love for us. But not just so that we can experience, but our personal experience can flow through us. So God's love is flowing through us. And so uh, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is a Christian prays, God, please let your love flow through me. I don't have what my spouse needs. I don't have what my children need. I don't have what this world needs. This world is a very, very broken place. There's a poverty to our world for which I don't have sufficient wealth. And so I need your wealth to flow through me. I need your power in this moment and that moment and the next. I need something beyond myself to flow through. And that's God's love in Christ. And so we sang the song and scripture says, there's nothing to boast about save for the love of Christ displayed on the cross. What else is there? Because every time I boast, if it's something about me, it's, it's silly, it's ridiculous. Anything that starts with me, it's utterly unworthy. We sing about God's love. We sing about God and Christ, because not because he's a glory hog, not because he loves attention or wants all the credit, but because he's the truth. And truthfully, you and I don't deserve it. Name one person who deserves praise and worship. There is none. And so it's about the love of God in Christ. So ministry, the definition is the give and take in community through which they experience God's love in Christ. There's three things I want to do today. I want to ask the question, why? Why ministry? Second, what ministries? And third, how do we do these ministries? Uh, Some of this is going to be informational. Um, I was thinking back to the ministry sermons that I've heard growing up and that I hear these days. Um, 
And a lot, I, I don't know, most of them have this sort of emotional appeal to it. They tell like a story where uh, some person is really touched by ministry and it, it sort of tugs on that heartstring for me. And I'm supposed to therefore believe in ministry and do it. And uh, I think you know some of those stories. Maybe you've experienced them yourself. I'm going to steer clear of that a little bit. Okay, so I'm going to sort of just provide, I think, some hearty rationale for ministry. Okay, and uh, we'll come back to this definition again. Okay, first, let's ask the question, why? Why do we do ministry? And I think there are three reasons that this passage that Bill read for us gives to us. The first is found in verse 1. It's talking about Jesus himself and his own reason for being sent by God. It says to encourage the poor. Now, this poor, these group of people that the Bible calls the poor, who are these people? And we've established uh, three weeks now that the poor is not them. It's not people out there, but it's us. All of us have a certain poverty to who we are and how we are and what we are. Blessed are the poor, or the poor in spirit, Jesus said. And he's not talking about the fact that there might be some people who are poor and they're blessed. And some people just are not poor, so they don't need the blessed. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is, blessed are you if you understand that you are poor. When Jesus says he abandons the 99 sheep to go chase the one lost sheep, he's not implying at all that there are 99 sheep who are not lost. What he's saying is, I will come after you if you understand that you are lost. I can't come after you if you believe you are not lost. If you believe you are fine, I cannot find you. And so the start, the the spiritual journey begins with spiritual poverty. Self-awareness about your own poorness. And this is what I've learned uh, in ministry. My number one rule in ministry that I remind myself over and over and over again. It's really simple. is no one is as they seem. Honestly, you all are an intimidating bunch. You look like you're fine. You're doing well. Everything is great. You got your life in order. Happiness resources, what more could you possibly want? And then we have our first conversation. And then I'm reminded, oh, you're just like me. There's a poverty to you and your life and your existence. And for you, you struggle. And you, are, you, you want. And you doubt. And you feel loss of hope. You're managing yourself. You're insecure. You're tired. You're numb. You're disillusioned. And that's just this half. I was talking about this half. (laughs) This half. For me, preaching is a large part of uh, sort of professional, uh, official ministry. And it does feel like I give when I preach. 
It does feel like I give. There's, a, there's an emptiness I feel. Paul talks about sort of himself being poured out like a drink offering, and I feel that sometimes. I feel like I sort of preach my heart out, put my life into it, and I pour myself out. And then right after I do that, what fills me up is feedback from you all. You know, there's a sermon feedback form in every, every week's loop that you get, and uh, people regularly fill that out. And I read that thing, and it's, some of it is so encouraging. And I realized, even as I was giving, there was this space for me that I wanted filled, I needed to have filled. And even as I give, I long to receive. And so I realized it's out of my own poverty that I give. I have issues that I'm trying to work out. I have needs I need met. And in my giving, I'm making a bid for connection. Remember that phrase, bid for connection? That was a good one. The need in me is constant. And I realize in my giving, there's always a conflict of interest because of the poverty nature of my existence, even as a pastor who's supposed to professionally give. I'm telling you, all of those neighbors that you're sitting next to, every single one of them, Nobody is fine. No matter what they tell you, don't believe them. They are not doing fine. They have lives filled with questions and needs and doubts and concerns and worries. They do. And so Jesus says, I've been called, I've been commissioned to encourage the poor. And that's the first consideration for why we should think about doing ministry because the need is all around us, including in your own life. Consider your own need for ministry. The second reason, I think, is found in verse 3. The very people that Jesus reaches, the poor, after Jesus reaches them, these people who were once called poor, in verse 3 then, are now called Oaks of righteousness. So they're called poor in verse 1. And after Jesus ministers to them, they are called oaks of righteousness. And the why answer is this. Consider how much you gain when you give. The way you become stronger is by giving. And the image here, uh, akin to you being a pipe, uh, is being like a tree. Think about a mighty oak tree that's providing shade for those who are resting under its branches. So imagine people leaning up against the trunk of this mighty oak, sitting on the ground. Experiencing, receiving shade from the blazing sun. But the very leaves and branches that are giving, providing shade to those below, it's drawing sustenance from the sun, which is sheltering the people below from. So it's this beautiful picture of the sun, uh, the, the leaves and the branches receiving power and energy from the sun, but it's actually sheltering people from the sun. And so the idea is that as it's drawing energy, it's able to give to the people under it. It's simultaneous. When you give, you become stronger. 
Another way to say that is, in the same way that the oak tree positions itself to receive, and simultaneously, because it's in a position to receive, with its branches and leaves splayed out, it's able then to give to those under its leaves and branches. And that's you. When you position yourself to give, you will receive. When you say to God, God, I am poor. And so you posture yourself to receive. You open your hands to receive wealth from God because you are poor. Then you become like a mighty oak tree. And this is one of those proverbs of life that you have to come to grips with. Do you get more when you try to get or do you get more when you position yourself to give? I'm not saying that giving is always easy or that it's clean. I'm not saying that sometimes you don't experience burnout or you're too fatigued to give. We'll talk about some of the how things a little bit later. But ask and answer this question for yourself. What is the single best way to receive in life? And I submit to you that it's to give. That's the design of this world. Okay, third. Oh, here's a little study I have for us. Uh, The study is this. Do a Google search on giving versus happiness. Because I try to uh, sort of summarize the main thought about this concept in the secular world. And there are literally thousands, thousands of studies out there, articles, books, authors, talking about this universal now, psychologically, sociologically, physiologically, even in our body, proven to be true that giving is greater than getting. The single best way to be happy, to get your tank filled up, and to find joy and satisfaction in life is to understand that it comes through giving rather than trying to get. Therefore, giving is greater than getting. And here's a summary of maybe about a dozen studies that I read uh, these last two weeks about this concept. Okay, I'm going to really try to make it succinct for you. Okay, these three words, you may want to write this down. The single best way to give is for it to have these three components in it. Okay, number one, it needs to be concrete. So, for example, you don't say to your spouse, I want to make you happy, because that's not concrete. If you say, I will clean all of the bathrooms and all of the floors today for you. And you do that, you set yourself up and the other person for greater happiness because it's concrete. Okay, if you wake up and say, I will make everyone happy today, everyone's going to be miserable. As my friend likes to say, if you want to have a bad day, have expectations. Okay, the second way to 
uh, receive as you give is to understand your own need for connection in the giving. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that often when we're talking about things or trying to, uh, you know, have a conversation, we're not actually caring about the content, but it's, it's just a bid for connection, right? Same thing with giving. Understand that you are trying to form connections through your giving, And make sure that's happening. So concrete, connectional, and then lastly, keep it clean. You can't give with strings attached because if you do, you're not actually giving. And joy diminishes dramatically. When you give, keep it clean. When you receive, say thank you and be done. Don't feel bound to the gift or to the giver. And when you give, Just give. Do your math. Count your costs. Choose and give and be done. So these three ways to optimize your giving. Concrete, connectional, clean. And then uh, the third reason for why I think we should do ministry is found in verse 4. Verse 4 says, These people who are once called poor, they become Mighty oaks of righteousness that declare the glories of God. And they, in turn, then are able to rebuild the perpetual ruins. Now, we spent some time on this phrase, perpetual ruins, so I don't want to go into it again. But I think it's really a key concept here that's worth underscoring again. And the idea is that the poor, Jesus said, you will always have with you. Meaning that all of us, we're not ministered to once and then we're set. We need constant ministry. And so that means you and I have a perpetual call to spend the rest of our lives serving other people. You can't be done. It doesn't matter how young you are, you have a call to give. Kids, are you hearing this? You exist to help your friends and to help mom and dad. You exist not to create problems for your teachers in school. And parents, of course, you understand. It's right there in your face. These tyrants in your life demanding your attention every day. But even after you're done, empty nesters, retired people in this room, Your job is not done. The ruins are perpetual. You have to ask the question, am I called to ministry? Consider that you are called. No matter who you are, no matter what life stage you're in, if you're not serving in some way, if you're not seeing the perpetual ruin that is you and all around you, you're missing God's great gifts to you. Because one of the primary ways that God is going to love you in your life is through your loving of others around you. I uh, have a little story that I'm not sure it's going to fully illustrate this, but it's so real to me. Hopefully you can get into my skin a little bit here. I'm a simple guy. And even though I may have big ideas, I also have really little ideas. And so um, 
my kids are really into this new uh, trendy lip balm called EOS. Anybody know what EOS are? Okay, so chapstick, lip balm, it's sort of this long, skinny, tubular thing, right? But there's this thing that's like a, a circle. And you twist open the circle, and the wax, is just, there's like a ball of wax. And you use that on your lips instead of the tiny tube, tubular stick. It's called EOS, E-O-S. And uh, we were really excited to get a pack of these. And uh, um, they're kind of expensive. They're about three bucks each, so a little bit overpriced. So we were especially excited to have this. But one of them, uh, the top part of it, the part that's useful, was stuck on the lid and it broke completely off. <laughs> and so we couldn't use it. And so what we would do is we would smack the lid down and pop the you know, wax off and then try to stick it back on the base and then hold it with our fingertips as we used it on our lips. But it's wax. It's literally a ball of wax. So it was so slippery and it'd keep like sliding off and it'd make our hands all messy. But we kept trying to use this thing because it was three bucks and we like it and it's, it's just fun. And so I'm a dad and I had a dad fix it idea. So I took a little flame and I melted the base of this just over the flame just so... And then I smashed the top portion onto it. And then I blew cool air around it. And then I melted a little bit more off the top. And I put in little welding spots on this EOS. And I keep it next to my bedside. And it's perfect. It works like a charm. And... Every morning when I wake up, my lips are dry, so I put that on. Every night before I go to bed, I put it on. I don't let any of my kids use it. I don't let my wife use it. It's just for me. It's my little redemption project. Susie wanted to throw it out. She's like, what, what good is this? I'm like, honey, don't you believe in the gospel? I think there's great delight when we participate in the redemptive work of God. You look around, you get to know people, and you get into enough relationships and hear enough stories, and things get so messy and tricky so quickly. It's so easy to just put your hands up and want to walk away. It's so easy to want to give up on each other. You know, here, here's the, the heart of the Christian gospel as experienced by us. And if you don't have this message for other people, and if you don't experience this, then you, you have no business believing the Christian gospel. Because this is what being a Christian is all about. It's this. Hope for each other. The moment you believe the other person cannot change, just walk away from, from God everything. Because there's nothing else left. Because really all we are are perpetual ruins. That's all we are. And if we want to throw that away, we can. We can. If we want to give up on each other, we can. If we want to keep things just clean, and we don't want to get in there, if we don't want to stick it out, if we don't want to have patience for each other, what's the first thing that love is? Love is patient. Love is kind. Remember when we did that whole Gottman study? What was the number one trait that holds couples together? 
It was kindness, patience. I'm telling you, we are all perpetual ruins. And my need for ministry is plain as day to all of you. You know I have needs in my life. And you can give to me and you can serve me. And I will be encouraged and my poverty will feel uplifted. You can throw the eels away because it's too much trouble. I think I, I take so much delight in repairing my eels and using it every day because it really is a reminder of me and my plight in life. I'm so glad people don't throw me away. Okay. Uh, there's a parallel passage to uh, the Isaiah passage. It's in Matthew 12. I want to read it for us. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Listen, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till, has, till he has brought justice through the, through the victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. The human tendency is to say, you are a perpetual ruin. I'm cutting you off. I'm abandoning you. I'm done with you. It's too much for me. I can't handle it. This has gone on too long. I'm ending things. I'm walking away. I'm cutting my losses. How many different ways can we say that? God's way is utterly different. And I'm not saying we are God, but I'm saying that God's love flowing through us is more powerful than the love that I have and that you have within yourself. And we have not begun to understand what God's love is able to do if it can flow through us. And at some point in our life, Maybe more than once, we have to come to the end of ourselves and say, God, these people that you have put in my life, they are a perpetual ruin. And I am also a perpetual ruin. We have nothing left. We're killing each other. And then God says, a smoldering wick, I will not put out. I won't do it. I know that's what you do. And a broken reed, I'll just snap off. A bent reed, who cares? Lots of reeds. But it is the joy of God. Oh, excuse me. It is the joy of God to redeem. Oh. I reversed the display somehow, right? All right, let's see. The good thing about this is it reset my timer. <laughs> there we go. Nope. What was I saying? <laughs> Something about love. Love is a great thing, guys. It's a good thing. Okay, next. I want to talk about what for just a second here. You have in your bulletin packets a list of some of the uh, ministries at our church. It's not exhaustive. There may be three or four that are not in there. 
I'd like you to look at it. Take a moment to look at it. Okay. Uh, I want to go over uh, just the structure of the church a little bit. Our church is what's called an evangelical covenant church. We practice a congregational polity model. Okay, what that means is that the highest authority in our church are the members of the church. It's like in the Presbyterian church, who are the final authority in a Presbyterian church? It's the elders. What about in the Methodist church? It's the bishop. What about in the Catholic church? It's the pope. In the covenant church, who are the, who's the final authority? It's the members of the church. Now, representing the members of the church in our church is the board of elders that we call the leadership team. They answer to the members of the church. And above uh, uh, the leadership team, accountable to the leadership team, is the lead pastor. That's me. I answer to the leadership team. They review me. They hold me accountable. I answer to them. And then I manage a staff. Okay? And then these staff are connected to ministry teams and ministry team leaders who are led by and composing, uh, composed of members and attendees of the church. Now, I want to ask you to think about an image of where you think our church is at. Where is our church at? We are in the middle of a revitalization work. And the image that I have for us is the image of a house that is being uh, renovated. And this is the conversation that Julie and I were having this week. Uh, We have all the walls up. We have the studs up. But it's not as clearly defined yet. We don't have the drywall up. We don't have painted walls. We don't have drywall on the ceilings. We don't have all the window dressings. But we have studs, wires, and plumbing. Okay, and that's where ministries come in. And we need, I think, at this phase, which is, I think, sort of the second phase of our church's revitalization stage, uh, we really need to ramp up the ministries of this church. And because we are a covenant church, we are a congregationally driven church, we need all of you to participate in the ministries of the church so that we can all experience the love of God. Because no matter how many times I talk about it or we profess to believe it, unless people experience it, according to the Bible itself, it's actually worthless. Okay, so I'm going to highlight just a couple of ministries here, uh, simple ones that some of you can dive into. We need a couple of people to say we will take on communion. Once a month, we have to get the bread ready and the juice ready and the setup and find people who will be the communion servers. Once a week, you have some organizational gifts. It's a light task for you. Let us know if you want to take on communion. We need Sunday greeters outside. Sometimes you see Kathy Riper, who's leading that ministry, running around to all the various, uh, you know, entree points in the church, trying to greet as many people as she can. Some, don't, some Sundays we have enough greeters. A lot of Sundays we don't have enough. And so we need you to sign up to do that. 
after new people come to our church, we need to enfold them into our community. We need to be able to reach out to them, write them cards, send them information, answer questions, coordinate connectional events so that they can get to know people. So we need somebody to head that up. We have a website. And let me tell you, a website is worthless as soon as it's outdated. People stop trusting it. And uh, we need somebody to say, you know, I'll take on the church website. Once a week, I'll spend 30 minutes to look at it, make sure things are updated and chugging along nicely. If that's you, let me know. We need help with layout and design. We have lots of things we want to communicate, like that printout thing. I spent like three hours making that this week. I really wish I could have spent my time doing something that I was better at, but layout isn't my thing. And so we have tons of needs around layout and design for communication purposes. We have this building. We don't have a mortgage on it. It's great to have a building that we own, but we need to uh, be able to organize efforts around this building to help maintain it. For example, we just found out that that projector right there, the fan for some reason keeps overheating because of the way the, it's bolted on. Uh, so the light went out last week. And this projector up here, I climbed up, or Zach climbed up a ladder. We set up a ladder here because it has shifted over to the left from all of the, uh, maybe the drums. I don't know what's causing it to vibrate off center. But we need help figuring that out. We need help uh, outside the grounds. We need help inside the church. If we hired uh, help for all of those needs, we would run out of money very, very quickly. Okay, and lastly, uh, many of you have been asking me for a church directory. We have the database. We just don't know how to figure out a login system so that it protects your privacy as well as give access to the right people with the information that they need to have to organize, self-organize as a community. We'd love for somebody to take that on. These are just some samples of needs in the church. If any of these or any of those highlighted in the uh, handout in your bulletin packet strike your fancy, please talk to me. Okay, uh, I know I'm running out of time here. How? How do we do ministry in a way that's life-giving, in a way that is sustainable, in a way that uh, is uh, good for everyone? Okay, I have some thoughts about that I want to share with you. The first uh, thing I want to remind you of is that we as we talked about last week, live in what I would call an opt-in world. Remember the bookstores that shut down? Why did they shut down? Because we live in a flattened world. We don't have to bottleneck our information through physical stores anymore. A very similar thing, a flattening of the world is happening in the church world. People don't have to come to a physical church community in order to experience spirituality. And for me, that's fine. But we have to ask the question now, how can we rethink the place of church in society and in people's lives? How do we reimagine how church people serve and give and participate, attend, and practice ownership over their church their building, and their community in an opt-in world. People used to go to church 50 times a year. Now people go to church once a month. 
on average. Look at today as a great example. We had to consolidate to one service because 30 or 40% of our church is away on vacation this week. That happens regularly. People opt into church because they're opting, they opt out of church because they're opting into other activities in their life. Our lives are very full. Now, with that reality in mind, how do we reorganize as a church? And it's part of the revitalization process that I'm hoping that our church will continue to go through. Okay, I'm going to give you some helpful tips. Okay, first, focus is greater than time. Meaning there was a time back in the day when you equated time with serving in a church. And I want to tell you there's something greater than time. It's focus. You can spend 30 minutes of focused time serving, and it can be greater than three hours that you give to church if you're not focused. For example, if I spend 10 minutes with my kids, but I'm utterly attentive to them, that's a greater gift than if I spend two hours with them, but I'm just on my phone. So that's one way to reimagine how we serve in church, by increasing focus rather than thinking in terms of time. Second, a formula that I have for us for how we do ministry in our church is to have the need clarified and then have the leadership identified. So need plus leader equals ministry. Sometimes we have a leader, but the need is unclear. Or sometimes we have a need, but we don't have leadership. And unless we have both things, we will not do it because then the quality drops or it's not sustainable. Okay, so first we want to clarify the need and then identify the leader. And lastly, uh, we want to think in terms of team ministry. Back in the day when we had deacons at our church, it was a great time because that was the culture. These days, it's not the culture for one person to be left holding the bag with regard to a single ministry. They want to do ministry in teams. They want to have the option to be sick or to be away or because their energy level is low or something comes up. And they want to know that somebody else on the team can do the job. And so we have been sort of testing this out at children's ministry and other areas. And people seem to really enjoy being part of a team. And so team is greater than me. Okay? And the job of the team is not just to do, but to champion the value to help the whole church participate in the ministry, but not just to do it on behalf of the church. Okay? Is that interesting to see my notes? I feel weird. Okay, here's my conclusion that you can all read for yourself, I guess. Okay. First, we ask the question, why? Why do we do ministry? And the answer is because we all need ministry, because we all benefit from ministry, and because we are all called to ministry. Okay? And the best way to do ministry is to make it concrete and to make it connectional, and to make it clear. And let me say this as we close. The whole purpose is not so that you can have something for yourself, a name. You can identify yourself as a servant or a giver. It's not even so that you yourself can meet needs. 
but it's so that Jesus' love can flow through you to the world. That is the whole teaching of Isaiah 61, the passage that we read today. I conclude by reading Romans chapter 12. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that we get to be a church together. Where would we be? What would we be doing if we weren't gathered here together as a body? And I pray for the healthy, life-giving, sustainable functioning of this body. Each of us, we have a story, we have gifts, and we bring before each other and before you our needs. We want all of this to somehow work together to be the body of Christ so that you may be glorified, so that your love may freely flow into us and out of us. God, do this work. Establish the work of this church so that your name may be lifted up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.